Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Evan. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm the creative lead here at the Grove Church, uh, which means basically I oversee, you know, video and, and media and, you know. Stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, do, I do the stuff. I picked out the desert chanty vibe of that video because I was like, what's the biggest shock to the system I could give after like the happy-go-lucky ukulele of the previous series? And I was like... <laughs> Just drum beats, drums in the deep. It sounded awesome. Uh, anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and pray. That, that'll help me get on track, and then we'll, we'll get started. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for the blessing that it is to be able to gather together, to be able to worship you, and to be able to learn more about you. Um, I pray that today, as I speak, that they would be my words and not, or that they'd be your words and not my words. I pray that there wouldn't be a hint of pride in my heart, and I pray that you would uh, just use me to communicate your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm a little flustered today. Um, last night, you know, I don't know if you've ever had those dreams where you wake up and it feels like it was real for a moment. Last night, I had a dream that I crossed the Canadian border illegally and was arrested. <laughs> and then I woke up and I was like, I have to like call someone and tell them, I'm like, I'm not going to be there and someone's going to have to fill in. And then like, you know, my body kicked in and was like, no, you dummy, you're in bed right now. I was like, oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I'll be honest, that has nothing to do with my message. I just want to let you know today that that's what, that's what I'm personally walking through in this moment online. Just wanted to let you know as well, because, you know, you, I want to be honest with everyone here. Um, okay, so to get into the actual message, I want to start off today talking about romances or romance movies, romance stories. And I, I may not look like it, but I, I do enjoy the occasional romance story. I'm definitely not, you know, it's not my thing I'm in the mood for every single day. Um, but I like the classics, right? Especially, you know, well, not the notebook. Don't get me started on that piece of garbage. But, um, if, and if you like, I mean, if you like the notebook, I mean, I'm not really sorry, but I guess we can agree to disagree on that one. But you know, like, I like to go back, if you've ever read, like, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, they're fantastic. The movie's also great. If you're really in the mood, there's, like, a six-hour BBC miniseries on Pride and Prejudice, which is also pretty good. Um, but even, like, today, in the modern sense, I enjoy, you know, I like the Hallmark movies. They're, they're all the same, but it's kind of like a guilty pleasure, you know, once in a while, you're just in the, especially around Christmas time. Uh, once in a while, you're pleasantly dis uh, surprised. I remember a few years back, I, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night. It's just a thing that, you know, my family has done for, for generations now. And I was like, okay, I'll turn on the Hallmark Channel, see what's on. It was Christmas in Conway starring Andy Garcia. Wasn't really expected much from it. And then an hour later, I was bawling my eyes out completely. <laughs> completely alone while he carried his wife to like the Ferris wheel that he built in their backyard. It was stupid. And I was just like, <laughs> it was crazy. Um, but I, I think it's one thing that we, we love, right? We love stories of romance and all throughout the Bible, there's a ton of them. Um, I think it's, it's not a controversial statement to say that the greatest love story in the Bible, or at least the greatest human love story is between Ruth and Boaz. Um, Ruth is just amazing, right? She, she grows up in a foreign land and then her husband dies, and she, but she commits herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She comes back to Israel. She's treated as an outsider, but she works hard. She's diligent. She just has a ton of integrity. And on the other hand, you have Boaz, who is just like the, the ideal picture of what a man should be. Um, he has tons of integrity. Everyone who works for him loves him. Like there's just passages upon passages about him. And then of course they end up together because they deserve each other and they're wonderful. And then out of that comes King David. Uh, and there's other love stories in the Bible that they start off really poor 
but God redeems them. And I'm thinking here of David and Bathsheba, right? Where it, it starts off literally as, as poorly as it could possibly start. It's David commits adultery with a married woman named Bathsheba. Uh, eventually he commits murder to try and cover that up. But out of that, God is able to redeem that relationship and you, and you get King Solomon, who is the next king. And then eventually out of that line, you get Jesus. And, and isn't it interesting that of, of all the wives of David, Bathsheba is the one that God chose to be the direct ancestor of Jesus. And, and then you have other love stories in the Bible where there's really nothing good about them. So I'm thinking here, like, like Samson and Delilah, just bummer across the board. Ahab, Ahab and Jezebel, both the worst, so they deserve each other in that sense. But there's really, you know, there's nothing healthy or redemptive that comes out of that relationship. That's just kind of the way it is. Um, but I, I also don't think it's, I don't think it's a controversial statement to say that the strangest love story in the Bible is the story of Hosea and Gomer. When Pastor Nick talked about a lot of this last week, so we're kind of going to we're just going to recap really quick. But Hosea is a prophet in Israel during what we'll call just the, the moral decline of the nation. So there's kind of this high point where David is king and all the people are worshiping God alone. And then after that, the generations go by and the Israelites are like, you know what's never worked out for us? Worshiping God. This falls, it always worked out. But they just decide to start worshiping other idols. Um, and so the kingdom eventually splits. You get the northern kingdom of Israel. You get the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, Judah would have these dead cat bounces every few generations generations where like a king would be like, hey, we should try not sacrificing kids. And the people would be like, that's a great idea. We should do that. Um, but in, in Israel, never happens. The kings are always just the worst. There's not a single good king in the northern kingdom. And so it's during the reign of, of Jeroboam II, which is really prosperous, but also really morally bankrupt, that Hosea is prophesying. And he's actually a contemporary of two other prophets. So it's Hosea, Amos, and Jonah are all three prophets in, of the northern kingdom of Israel during this period. And what's interesting is they're, they're all called to proclaim God's coming wrath and also the, the path towards repentance and forgiveness. But they, but they all do it in very different ways. And so Amos, for instance, he is called to preach the word that the Lord has given him and what his main message is that the day of the Lord is coming. And when he says the day of the Lord is coming, the people of Israel kind of rejoice, like, yes, day of the Lord. And Amos is like, no, it's not like, it's not gonna go the way you think it's gonna go. And so he's talking about how they need to repent of the fact that they've been kind of trusting in God even though they haven't been following any of his commands, even though they've been worshiping other gods. And then he also, again, gives them the opportunity to repent. Jonah has a very similar message, except instead of being called to preach it to his own people, Jonah is called to go, and he's commanded to go to Nineveh, where he preaches this message of God's coming wrath to the Ninevites, and God would use that for the redemption of the city and to offer them mercy and repentance. Of course, Jonah wasn't a fan of that, but you know, well, that's, that's beside the point. Hosea is called, similarly to Amos, he is called to minister to the people in his home. However, instead of just proclaiming the word that God has given him, Hosea was called to live out an example of what God was trying to say. 
And so he is commanded to marry. The NIV calls Gomer a, a promiscuous woman, which I think is the most, the most generous of the translations. Um, and then as Pastor Nick clarified last week, this is a one-time deal, right? This is not an ongoing command from the Lord. Uh, but this one time, God is like, Hosea, I want you to go and marry a promiscuous woman. And so they have three children. And so the first child is named Jezreel, and this is to remind the people of Israel of the sins of the family of the king. And so a few generations before, the way that this dynasty of kings had taken power was by murdering all of the sons of the previous king and then claiming the crown for themselves. And this all happened in the valley of Jezreel. And so the first child is named to remind the people of that. The second child is named not loved. And this is to remind the people of Israel that God has every right to break the covenant because they are the one, the people of Israel, are the ones who have broken it. God and Israel had this covenant between each other that they would worship him alone, that they would be his people, he would be their God, and that he would protect them. And if you look at just kind of history, what you see is these great empires around the nation of Israel, and then you see this tiny little blip on the map where God is clearly protecting them and keeping them from being conquered. But the people of Israel, again, continuously break their covenant, and God is reminding them that he is not obligated to continue protecting them in this way. And then find the last child is named not my people. And this is to remind the people of Israel that they do not have to be God's chosen people. And it, it reminds me of the passage in Matthew where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's, he's reminding them essentially to not, not be so arrogant about being what they call sons of Abraham. And what he says is that he, he points over to some stones and he says, God could take those stones and he could make them sons of Abraham if he wanted to. Or in other words, don't put so much faith into your, your, fam, your family lineage or your, your genetic line. And so after all this happens, the three children are born, Hosea goes and he begins his ministry. And this is where we're going to pick it up today. Hosea first proclaims his first oracle is about the coming wrath of God. And his second one, again, similar to Amos, right? It's the coming wrath of God. And his second oracle is about the coming mercy of the Lord. And then some years have passed between when the children are born and between when Hosea is engaging in his ministry. And he's reminding the people of Israel that they have been unfaithful. And he can even point to his wife as an example of how she broke her marriage covenant with Hosea. Hosea can point to how the people of Israel have broken their covenant with God. And it's with this backdrop that God asks Hosea or really commands Hosea to do something crazy. So in Hosea chapter 3, starting in verse 1, we read this. The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Which that raisin cakes thing, that's just a way that they would worship other gods. It's a weird little insert, but there you go. In case you were wondering, can I not have raisin cakes? I don't know why you would, but... <laughs> If you, yeah, feel free to enjoy your raisin cakes. Uh, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in those days. So we get a lot of context about what happened in those years in between. We, we're not told exactly when it happens or how it happens, but we know that, Hosea, that Gomer has left Hosea. 
And we don't know if this man that she is currently with is the man that she left Hosea for. Um, she may have left him to go actually be a prostitute for a while and then end up in a bad situation. But somehow she ends up as, as a sort of slave to this new man that she is with. And Hosea is left to raise children who, who he's not even sure are actually his. And it's interesting because when we read in Hosea chapter one, the first child, it, it says that Gomer bore Hosea a son and they named him Jezreel. But the next two children, all it says is that Gomer bore another child. It's, it's not specified whether or not the child is actually Hosea's. And so it's, it's purposely left vague for both us and Hosea as to who the father of some of the children are. And I, I think one, one of the mistakes that we make when we read the Bible is, is we don't take the time to kind of try and look at what's happening through the eyes of the characters that we're reading about. Like imagine for a moment being Hosea. Be, imagine being called to enter into a marriage that you knew was going to fail from the start. Uh, imagine the, the pain and the betrayal of being left. Imagine having to, to look the children who you love in the, in the face and not really actually be able to know if they're, the, if they're yours or not. This, this is the world that Hosea is living in. And, and I, I imagine that Hosea had probably resigned himself and, and was ready to spend the rest of his life simply preaching the words that God would give him, that he had lived out this really painful example of the betrayal that Israel had given to God, and now he was going to proclaim truth. Um, but, that, but that's not what God had for him. God wanted Hosea to again live out the relationship between him and his people. And, and so Hosea goes, and he redeems his wife. He goes, and he gets his wife back. And, and, and don't miss this. He, he pays a price for someone that should have already been his. And I, and I don't mean been his in the sense of, like, slavery and owning a person. I mean in the sense of, like, the marriage covenants that we make today. Like, even today in a marriage ceremony, we talk about this idea of mutually belonging to each other, mutually submit, submitting, being the husband of one wife and being the wife of one husband. That that's the promise that they had made to each other, and Gomer broke it, and Hosea never should have had to actually pay for the pleasure of having his wife around him, but, and yet that's what he has to do. It's, it's absolutely humiliate, humiliating for a man in that position, for any person in that position. And yet, he humbles himself and he redeems his wife. And then we're told that they renew their marriage covenant, right? That's what the language is of, um, you will not be with another man, I will not be with another woman. They're in that moment renewing their marriage vows. It's almost like a reset button of saying from this moment forward, the marriage is, is restarting again and, and we're going to do this right. And what's What's interesting to me is that the story just, it ends there. We see, we see it all through Hosea's eyes, and the book of Hosea doesn't end there. We get more prophetic oracles and poetry, um, but the story of Hosea and Gomer cuts off. And I, I, I just think it's interesting because Israel is being shown in that moment a physical example of a spiritual reality that they've been living in. 
And we, we can imagine that the, the people of Israel would look at this situation, right? They would look at Hosea, they would look at what Gomer had de- done to him, and they would say, man, if, if Gomer was my wife, I would have just let her go off in there. I can't believe she would betray Hosea like that. You can imagine people talking about how Gomer doesn't deserve a husband like Hosea. Who, who loves someone like that, even though they continuously betray and betray and betray again? And, and then the kind of, you can imagine the curtain being pulled back and the people of Israel realizing that they are Gomer. And I think it's, it's a loving thing that God does for us. One of the most loving things and most painful things that God can do for us is kind of take us outside of ourselves a little bit and, and show us our sin from, from a different angle that we hadn't seen before. Like to, to go back to David and Bathsheba from the beginning, right? When, when the prophet Nathan confronts David on his sin, he doesn't go to the palace and say, you've committed murder and adultery, which was true. He, he could have just said that. But instead, he, he tells him a story of a family who had a lamb that they kept as a pet, and they lived next to a, a rich man who had herds and herds of sheep. And when a friend came to the rich man to stay the night, instead of taking one of his sheep and, and killing it to, to feed to the other man, he, he went and stole the lamb, and he served that instead. And David's enraged, and he demands that this man be brought before him so he can be punished. And that's when Nathan tells him, you are the man, you have done this deed. And it's, it's at that moment that it breaks David because he, he, he was able to see his sin. By, by the grace of God, he was able to see his sin in a way that he had never seen it before. And I think the, the, the Old Testament is not the only time that God does this either. There, there's so many times where in the Old Testament we see the prophets live out the character of God, or at least they live out a, a metaphor of the way God is like. And I, I was reading a book, it was kind of an interesting book, it was about poetry and the Gospels, but well, one, of the, uh, one of the chapters on it was talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the ministry of the prophets. And it was, the author's name is uh, Andrew Claven, but he was talking about how in the Old Testament you see the prophets living out these relationships. So like Hosea is a really famous one. You also have uh, Ezekiel who has to lay on one side and then the other. Well, that might have been Isaiah. I might have messed that up. Anyway, one of the prophets, they do that whole thing. Um, And then what we see is when, when God becomes flesh in the ministry of Jesus, we see more clearly than ever before the true nature and character of God. Because when, when Jesus is ministering, he's not showing us what God would be like if he was human. He's showing us what God is like as human. When, when, when Jesus is forgiving people who don't deserve forgiveness, when he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, when he's offering grace and redemption to the lowest of society, he's, he's not just living out a metaphor for us today. He is God doing that for those people in that moment at that time. And see, one of my, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, it, it takes place on the road to Emmaus. And we're told that there's, there's two disciples of Jesus. One is named Cleopas and the other one's not named. And they're walking along this road after Jesus' death and resurrection have taken place. And they're, they're just talking about how amazing this is, how they're so confused about what's happening. Who knows if Jesus really is resurrected or not resurrected. And then they meet Jesus, only Jesus is disguising himself. He's not letting them know that it's him. And they keep talking about it and they keep saying, they, they mention something along the lines of, you know, why, 
Why, would the, why, did, why did Jesus die? That doesn't make any sense to us. And this is where Jesus kind of begins, he doesn't lose it, but he begins to kind of explain to them what's happening. And so in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 25, he says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I think that, that might be one of the most skipped verses in the Bible that is so important. It says that Jesus went through all of the law and the prophets, which if you're wondering, the law is at the beginning, the prophets are at the end, so that's, that's the whole deal, and showed how all of it pointed to him. Like what, what, what Jesus is getting is that, is that everything from, from the law to the history books to the wisdom literature to the prophetic books, all of it is shouting out the truth of Jesus. All, all of the Old Testament cries out looking forward to Jesus. And what, and what that means for us today is that when we read the story of Hosea, we don't just have to read it as God's relationship with Israel at that time, which is absolutely true. And that's the primary, the first way to read it. But the second way we can see it is that it's God's relationship with us as well. When we read Hosea, we, we don't just see that the Israelites are Gomer. What we see is that we are Gomer. We see that just like the Israelites constantly broke covenant with God, just like they constantly failed, just like they constantly fell short, we can see in our own lives how we fail and we fall short. And, and I think that just, just like seeing that we are Gomer, we can see how Hosea loving Gomer in spite of this is not just a metaphor for God's love for Israel in that time. It's also a metaphor for God's unrelenting love for us today. And, and, and just like Hosea sacrificed his money in order to save Gomer, we can realize that Jesus sacrificed his life in order to save us. And we don't just see that we are Gomer, we see that Jesus is the, the greater Hosea. And I think, like I, like I brought up before, it's interesting that the story of Hosea and Gomer kind of just cuts off, but I think it's intentional. Because I, I think we're supposed to fill in how we should react. Because I guess to a certain extent, it doesn't matter how Gomer reacts. Gomer is, is, is one person. What matters is once we realize that we are Gomer, once we realize that we've been redeemed, once we realize that we were, we were trapped in slavery, that we were trapped in sin, and God reached down and saved us, how are we going to live in light of that? See, it's, it's, it's easy to repeat, and I say this often, but... It's easy to say that Jesus Christ is, is God in the flesh, that he lived the perfect sinless life that we could never live, that he died the death that we deserve to die, and that because of his death and resurrection, we can find our forgiveness, our purpose, and, and we can have relationship with him. Um, we can say that all the time, but how, how many of us, how often do we truly believe it? Because I, I think if, if, we, if we truly believed it, it would change our lives. And I, I think there's, 
there's a pride that we have in it, and it manifests itself in a couple of different ways. But I think one way it can manifest itself is kind of just this, this arrogance of life. And we look at the things that we've accomplished, we think of ourselves on our best days, and when we like to imagine that you know, we, we got here completely on our own, that we, you know, we pulled ourselves up from our bootstraps and we built this life for ourselves and we didn't need anyone's help and we didn't need God's help, but we, we did it on our own. And it, it's, it's funny how we can, we can look at the blessings of our life not through a lens of thankfulness, but instead we just look through it in a, in a lens of arrogance. And I think the second way that that pride can manifest itself, and it, it feels a little counterintuitive, but I think when people um, declare worthless that which God has redeemed, it's pride. And when we when we dwell on our sin, when we dwell on our failures, when we, when we say to ourselves that God's redemption is for other people, but it's not for us, I'm too far gone, when we continuously beat up ourselves, it, it doesn't feel arrogant, it feels like we're being humble, um, but really what's happening in that moment is when, when God declares it is finished, when God declares that my mercy is for you, we're, we're standing up and we're looking back into the eyes of God and we're saying, you're a liar, not for me. And it's, it's, it's weird because it feels almost righteous when we do that, but it's, it's just as prideful as believing that we don't need God's grace because we're so good. It's just as arrogant to believe that we, that we don't have access to God's grace because we failed. See, I, I think they, they both equally miss the mark where... Some of us were, and, and for me, obviously, I go back and forth between the two, right? I, I'm, some days I'm feeling really great, and that's how I'm tempted to define myself. Some days I'm feeling really low, and that's how I'm tempted to define myself. Um, but when we define ourselves by our best moments or when we define ourselves by our worst moments, what we're missing is that we need to be able to define ourselves by our relationship with God alone. And I love, I'm a, I'm a sucker for old hymns. I'm all about them. And I love, there's a, there's a line that says, um, I will not boast in anything, no gift, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And, and the idea there is that there's no height that we can reach where we can say to ourselves, I earned my salvation. And there's no depth that we can reach where we can say that God's salvation is not available to me. And instead, God's love and his grace and his redemption is the great equalizer, and we have to be able to define ourselves by the love that God has for us. We, we, we have to be able to say that like Gomer, we were trapped in sin, we were hopeless, there wasn't a way out, and then God reached down and saved me, and that is the defining moment of my life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the truth of your gospel. I thank you so much that we can read the story of one of your prophets thousands of years ago and we can see ourselves in the story. I thank you that we can see your love and your grace and your redemption in the story. And Father, I pray that where we're tempted to be prideful and define ourselves by our best days or define ourselves by our worst days. I pray that we would always remember that our primary identity is found in the love that you have for us. I pray that your love would shape us. I pray that it would define us. 
And I pray that we would be able to rest in the peace that it offers. In Jesus' name, amen.